Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Matthew chapter 19, and let us read again beginning at verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Well, congregation, um, it's incumbent upon the people of God in every age to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And that means different things at different times. There are different aspects of the word of God which our fathers and mothers in the time of the Reformation had to especially contend for. And you could think in the last uh, hundred years uh, in churches throughout our land, there were other issues like the inerrancy of the Bible or uh, the virgin birth that um, churches were going soft on and and men and women had to take a stand if they would be faithful unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's increasingly evident that if there would be a faithful church in the land of Canada in the year 2022, it will have to contend for what the scriptural teaching is concerning biblical sexual ethics. The stark reality is that we are living in days of political, cultural, and spiritual catastrophe. For in uh, our nation of Canada, our political class and every major political party has sided with Bill C-4, which in effect by its broad wording would criminalize those who would propagate biblical teaching on sexual ethics, as we considered last week. But likewise, it's not coming out of nowhere. It's in the culture all around us. If you would go to a university or a college, if you would work in any workplace, if you would drive down the streets of our city or any of the communities here in southern Ontario, there is a thick hostility to the word of God on this point, to the point where almost the most despicable uh, sin you can commit in the eyes of our neighbors is to take a stand on such things. But probably the thing that most burdens me is going to be the spiritual toll to these things, that in uh, such a political context, in a cultural context, there is going to be an increasing temptation to compromise among the people of God. There is going to be a temptation among ministers and teachers and counselors and parents, among congregants, to hold back from proclaiming what the law and the gospel teach on these points. And the effect is going to 
to be catastrophic to those who are yet in the bondage to sexual sin. They may indeed be deprived of that one hope which is found in salvation through Jesus Christ in his atoning death and his life-giving spirit. And so with these things in view, we will return again to this topic. Last week, we especially focused on the conversion of homosexuals from the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to continue on these points, but now consider uh, more positively what the Bible teaches about what God requires in the area of, of sexual purity. And for this, we will go to the words of Jesus Christ himself as they're found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And we'll consider this under the theme, biblical sexuality, biblical sexuality. I'd like to consider two thoughts under this theme. First, the standard for biblical sexuality. And second, the sins against biblical sexuality. So first, we will sort of expound the text here and seek to discern the clear teaching of Scripture about how to determine what is right in the area of sexual ethics. And second, we will uh, identify some of the sins which transgress this very clear standard. Now, of course, the context, as you see it here in Matthew 19, is quite common in the history of our Lord's ministry. Christ is teaching to the multitude, we see in the first three verses, and he is preaching the wonderful news of the kingdom, the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of which he himself is king, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what does he do? Well, uh, as he's teaching, he's, he's approached by these Pharisees. Pharisees, the wicked uh, religious leaders of that day who were opponents of Christ and his teaching, and they seek to approach him, as we see in verse 3, with this problem. It says in verse 3, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, as they are, are very prone to do, they are seeking to put Jesus in a trap. They are going to tempt him in order to say something that they can use against him. You see, in those days, there were different schools of rabbis uh, that sought to interpret the laws of Moses in a way that people could understand. So you would have, for example, the school of Hillel, which would interpret the law of Moses in this way, that you can only... Uh, divorce your wife for a cause of sexual immorality. And then, on the other hand, you'd have uh, another school of interpretation, like the school of Shemai, and they would say, well, basically, if your wife would burn your food or if you would just get, get tired of her, yeah, you can divorce her for basically any reason. And the, the controversy arises uh, from the words of Deuteronomy, at this point, if you would look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, this is what the law says. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass 
that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And so basically it's a disputation about what that word uncleanness means. Is it, simp- is it serious sexual sin or is it rather uh, anything that would be displeasing to the husband? This is the controversy. And Jesus, um, as he does in these situations, he doesn't hold back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. He rather speaks directly to this issue. And he does so by putting before us the standard of biblical sexuality. Look how he puts it here again in verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So it's a very profound uh, thing that's being said here. Jesus is pointing to this reality that if you would truly understand what biblical morality says about the issue of sexuality, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. You need to really examine the design of God when it comes to sexuality. And this is, this is ultimately where our culture is completely lost in the woods, isn't it? Because our culture is steeped in the wicked mythology of Darwinian evolution. This lie of the devil, which teaches that ultimately this world came into existence without the creative power of God, and that human beings themselves uh, are no different than the animals. And the animals themselves are no different than rocks because they just came from the inanimate matter and then human beings came from the animals. And so there's just this great chain of being. Everything is, is like everything else and um, everything is just matter that resulted from sheer chance. It's an ideology of nihilism that means meaninglessness. It's incompatible with anything of real moral truth. And so there's every um, incentive for our society that is bent on radically opposing the will of God to indoctrinate our uh, nation with this lie because it makes them very malleable to the suggestions of the devil. But Jesus speaks a word for both that time and this time when he points that back to the very uh, first um, chapter of Genesis. And in the beginning, God made them male and female. When we would begin to think about sexual morality, we need to think about the sexes, male and female, men and women. The biblical history is very clear. God fashioned the first man from the dust of the ground. He fashioned the first woman from the rib of the man. He created a man and a woman to 
multiply and to exercise dominion over this world. Male and female, he created them. And he created them in his image, as we're told in the book of Genesis, with equal dignity as those who pictured the glory of God as those made with true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, with beautiful bodies in order to, um, to inhabit the world in which they were created for. The human being as a place of dignity, as the crown of God's creation. And men and women, as distinct sexes, were an inseparable part of that created order. That is the teaching of Christ. That is the standard which our world rejects, but that is what is set before us. But it's important to note that that is true no matter whether it's rejected or not. It is true that men and women have distinct natures. They were created to be different. This is perhaps one of the the most wicked lies of the homosexual uh, movement because it takes that which is supposed to be channeled towards the other, a man for a woman. There's difference, distinction, and yet complementarity. This is the, the basis of genuine, wholesome romance and, and intimacy within God's plan. And What is it that the devil would seek to do? Well, he would seek to pervert sexuality so that rather your your romantic affection goes to a mirror image of yourself. Totally against the plan and purpose of God. But notice how it, it continues here. In verse 5, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father, and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, or tear apart. There's something that's very uh, glorious here. That from the very beginning, These two natures, the man and the woman, were made for one another. Even before the fall, before the fall into sin, this was God's plan from uh, the book of Genesis onward. That when a man reaches maturity, he would leave his father and mother and he would enter into a union of marriage with a woman something glorious about this. It, it brings together so many parts of our nature. The, the wondrous closeness of emotional intimacy. The life-giving potential of, of bearing children. Of bringing life into the world. Of propagating a dynasty, a legacy. Of bringing, of bringing civilization, godly civilization to, to this world. What a glorious thing that God should design, this institution of marriage. And I think we need to face this very squarely. 
Many people would say, well, okay, you can quote the law of Moses. Yeah, you can quote this word of Paul, but Jesus has never said anything about these things, never condemned homosexuality, never condemned so many other sins in which you Christians are so concerned with. But if you would just hear what Jesus is saying here, you would see that rather his teaching is so unmistakably clear. Men were created to be men, and women were created to be women. They were created to enjoy marriage. And marriage is so important to God that he says, when he has joined them together in that covenant where they promised to spend life together, to share intimacy with one another, to bear children with one another, or to be open to having children, and that is something sacred which God says, don't touch it. Don't interfere with it. Hold it as precious. Do not rip it apart. They are now one. So that we, we see in the first place, this uh, standard goes to the design of God. Right to the very beginning. Something that God fashioned for his own glory and can never be changed. But let's look as well, not only about the design of God, but also the commandments of God. And you see that this actually is, occupies a, a large part of this chapter there in verse 7. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give writing of divorcement and to put her away? So they're referring to that verse of Deuteronomy, which I'd read. He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery." Now, there's actually a number of different uh, ways to understand what Jesus is saying here. And there'd be those that would say, okay, um, Moses was actually teaching something different than the original command um, given at the beginning of creation. And Jesus is now coming in and restoring that original standard. But but the law of Moses, um, by allowing for some kind of divorce in some situations, well, that was for a temporary time, and it no longer has anything to say about us. And I don't think that's a necessary way to interpret it at all. In fact, I think it's much more accurate to say that both um, the beginning design of marriage and Moses and Christ are all saying the same thing. And for an extended discussion of this explanation, I would point you to Robert Dabney's Systematic Theology, where he talks about the Seventh Commandment. But let me just point you to, to how this all fits together. Essentially, um, the, the school of Hillel is more accurate to Moses' intention, that there are allowances for lawful divorce, but only in the cases of the most serious kind of sin, those of a grievous sexual nature, which actually sever the, the bond of marriage. That is ultimately what he says, right? 
that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So in other words, God cares about the unity of marriages. If you are in a marriage that is a lifelong bond, you have covenanted towards another. God takes that seriously. It's a, it's a serious thing to um, have a divorce without a lawful reason. But indeed, there is a case of uncleanness, as Moses said, and uh, which, is, which is so grievous, like cheating on your partner with another uh, man or, or woman that would actually give that other grieved party the right to divorce. That seems to be what Jesus is saying, vindicating the law of Moses in its true intent. And I'd like to unpack further uh, applications of that under the, the, the next heading. But for right now, just let's point this obvious uh, truth that the law of God does speak to these things and it speaks to them very clearly. Jesus, as the great and chief prophet, he is speaking to our situation as well. The commandments of God are so clear and so unchanging that we dare not say anything against them except we would bring down the judgment of God upon our churches and upon our land. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass away from this law of God, but shall all be fulfilled, Jesus said. So that is the standard of um, morality. It's the law of God as Jesus expounds it. But uh, let's look at briefly this third standard under this heading, and that is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Beginning at verse 10. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. So the disciples are so alarmed at this prospect that they won't be able to divorce their wives for any reason they say, well, maybe it would be better not to marry. That's a very strict, high standard you're setting, Jesus. And then you see how he replies to them. But he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. So he's saying, okay, well, not everyone can receive this teaching of mine, only those to whom it is given. So... Who is it that this is given to, this commandment to marry and to remain in that bond of marriage? Well, he, he explains, for there are some, there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So a eunuch in, in those days was one who was castrated. So there, um, 
Her genitals were removed and in order to place them in a position of, of service to a king who wanted them so completely devoted to him so that they would never even think about leaving an heir or a family of their own. It was a very wicked practice. But Jesus is, is using this, and he's speaking about three examples, basically three people to whom the commandment to marry is not given. And the first is a eunuch who's born from his mother's womb. So this is someone who perhaps is born with some sort of genetic problem or some terrible injury, such that he, he is just not uh, possible for him to get married. If anyone, because of some, some physical reason or, or uh, some, uh, some providential reason, is unable to get married, Jesus says... You ought not to worry about this. Indeed, you're not called to marry. You're called to be pure outside marriage. But there's nothing shameful about this. This is part of living in a fallen world. And, and uh, such as those are, are not under obligation. And he goes on. He speaks of those who are made eunuchs of men. So that's more the direct case of someone because of the malice of, of others has been turned into a eunuch. And so they're no longer able to, as they say, consummate a marriage through intimacy. And, um, and so for that reason, they're incapable of marrying. And the third case, which is interesting, is those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So here he's talking about those who have a really good reason for not pursuing marriage. God has a purpose for that, and that is that they would give themselves completely to kingdom work. And, you know, there are people throughout the history of the church who uh, have, have given, been given the gift of celibacy, such that they are able to be godly Christian people without being married, and they give themselves to the service of the Lord, and they are, are honored by the Lord in a number of places of, of Scripture. But he concludes, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So in other words, if you're not in any of these categories, then, then the ordinary thing is that you should desire to pursue marriage. So as you can see, congregation, very clear uh, teaching here as well. The, and this is about the kingdom, you notice. The kingdom of heaven that he places this in the context in. Really, all of the Christian life pursued unto the glory of Christ for those who've placed their faith in him, they don't discard this teaching about morality. No, they fulfill it. They pursue it with gladness from the heart. They subject their minds and their wills to what God has spoken, and they do so in gratitude. That is the teaching of of Christ here. Grace does not contradict what God has revealed in nature and in his law. Rather, grace perfects nature and grace fulfills the law. So that, in the first place, we see the standard for biblical sexuality. So now, having worked through the text, I'd like to apply it to a number of, uh, of sins number of sins that we must speak very clearly about as a church and as Christian people. 
We name these sins not to say that there is no grace for those who who commit them, but precisely this, that they need grace and they will not seek it apart from being confronted with their sin. So what shall we say in the first place? Well, if we would reflect upon what Jesus has said here in this chapter, we should say that all gender confusion is a grievous sin against God. All gender confusion. And perhaps you'll remember last week when I read from this pulpit the words of Bill C4, it used kind of the strange language of cisgender. The first time my knowledge, this has been used in law in Canada. What is that referring to? Well, the way you and I would say that is that is referring to a man or a woman who identifies as a man or a woman. Pretty revolutionary. In other words, this is the belief grounded upon science, on rationality as well as the word of God, that God assigns um, the sex of male or female, man or woman, at conception, through birth, throughout natural life. And those, um, those sexes, man and woman, they are encoded in their DNA, and they are reflected in their anatomy, and they have a clear purpose, and that is inseparable from that of bringing children into the world. God loves children. They are the, the wonderful gifts that he gives to, um, to, the child, to humanity and also to his own people. You notice how later on in this chapter it talks about how Jesus welcomes the children. And so uh, that is the, the purpose of, of male and female. If you are a man, you have the capacity of uh, begetting children. If you are a woman, you have the capacity of bearing children. This is basic to our created purpose. And so when, when we look at the movement of transgenderism, and this very uh, wicked form of gender confusion, which says you can transition from being a man to a woman because you, you feel like a woman, or you can translate from being a girl to a boy. We need to understand that this is all lies. This is all lies of the devil. There is no basis in rationality, and it, it is pure political propaganda. It is impossible for a man to become a woman or for a woman to become a man. It has never been done and it never will be done. All that can happen is that you can turn a man or a woman or a boy or a girl into a eunuch. You can apply chemicals to them. You can mutilate their bodies such that they will never be able to bear children. But you can never Never undo what God has done through his created design. And all such cases are rebellion against God. We ought to be most compassionate and loving and patient with those who've been so indoctrinated with this wicked concept, with those who are confused about their uh, sexuality. We ought to uh, never mock them or be cruel to them. 
But we ought to be very firm on this point. It is not the case that there is any basis to it, in fact, whatsoever. And we need to oppose it. Second, we ought to say, okay, that's a very clear case of gender confusion, but what perhaps about some of the, the softer cases? Well, if we're, if we're being honest, the reason why these extreme cases have propped up, the reason why it's all the rage in, in government schools and even Christian schools sometimes, well, it's because our whole society is confused about male and female, isn't it? Ultimately, it's been the case for a long time that men and women have both been rebelling against their created roles. So, not to, not to get into all the different manifestations of this, but let's just name a couple obvious ones. If we would look at the feminist movement, for example... We need to understand that if you would read their literature and you would look at the fruit of this in society, it is in great part an attack upon God's created design. Yes, every Christian should support respecting women, granting them the dignity and the the glorious role in which God has given to them, respecting their thoughts, respecting their words, respecting their abilities. And yet, we ought to be very plain that women can never be men. And when we look at a movement that seems to be very bent upon simply equalizing all of society so that in government or in the church or in the nation or in the family that women have more authority and more power, then we ought to ask the question, what is really informing this? Is this really the, the language of the scripture which enjoins um, us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let Wives be to their own husbands in everything. Indeed, we ought to uh, recognize that this role is not one that is undignified. It is not demeaning to women. that They should be uh, helpmates to their husbands in the family and that they should be excluded from certain roles in the church and that They, as the weaker vessels, should be protected by the men in society. Such things are not old-fashioned. They are biblical. Likewise, we can uh, say this as well, not only feminism, but effeminacy. Effeminacy. And what is effeminacy? Well, it's it's a very simple uh, concept, and that is uh, men who are not acting in their role as men, but they're acting like women. And perhaps a good text to consider in that regard would be in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. So there in the in the Old Covenant law, there's a moral principle there that men are to act as men. 
They are not to take those aspects of culture that belong to women, even in the realm of clothing. No, they are to act as men. And so they are to cultivate masculine virtues. They are to speak with masculine dignity and authority and sobriety. They are to govern their emotions and govern their actions in order to exercise godly leadership in every aspect of society. Even Ephesians chapter 5, which we uh, read further, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it's not a passive thing to be a husband. No, it is an active thing. You are to strive to give yourself to your family, to exercise that leadership and lordship in the context of your family for their spiritual good and especially for that of your wife. And I think we ought to, um, we ought to each one of us, in, in love and gentleness, seek to stir up these kinds of virtues among both the men and the women in Christian communities to really strive for excellence in the way God has created us. God has made men and women different in order that they would love one another and in order that they would glorify God in their different capacities. All gender confusion is abomination. Let us strive for holiness in this area of our lives. Second, let's consider the sin of all profaning of marriage profaning of marriage this follows also very clearly from what jesus taught in his uh, in this part of god's word and obviously jesus uh, spoke here didn't he about adultery adultery a terrible sin never never ought it to be spoken in the household of god and yet Anyone who's been in the ministry any length of time knows that it is much more common than we might think. We must flee from any appearance of sexual immorality in this. Husbands and wives, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Seek to it that your spouse is your best friend. And where there is a a departure from that, where there is a cleavage, you must do everything in your power to mend that breach and to make things well. Because the results are, are very dishonoring to the Lord. As it said, divorce, divorce. It's a shocking thing that this teaching of Christ after 2,000 years is just as scandalous in the Christian church as it was in the days of, of Christ. I almost hear many people in the church today say, you know, who can bear this? It would be better not to marry at all if you couldn't divorce a bad spouse. And yet, so sacred is this institution of marriage that apart from a lawful reason, like sexual immorality, it ought not to be done. It ought rather to, uh, to be a cause for prayer and for counseling and for labor. And there can be cases where a separation for a time is necessary, but it's always God's desire to bring, bring the two together. They would live as one. As well, we can say all fornication, all fornication, 
And here I especially think of that which is taking place before marriage. For you single ones here, do you know that the devil especially desires to cause you to stumble at this point? It may be the case that you don't know for sure that you will be married in the future. It can be a cause of discouragement, a cause of temptation. But let me tell you something. The Lord is gracious. He will help you through that. But do not despise the means that he provides. Godly friends, godly accountability, and ensuring that you are living above reproach. You know, it's sometimes been been said that you should be just as careful for guarding your purity for your future spouse, even if you don't know who they are, as if you were already married. Let's take that to heart. It says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Likewise, we say all pornography, all pornography and abomination against God. It is a blight upon the church of Christ. It robs people of their ability to have a normal relationship with a member of the opposite spouse. It dehumanizes the one who is recorded and it dehumanizes you and and defiles your conscience, makes you one who is incapable of serving the Lord. And it doesn't just apply to, you know, things that you might search out on the Internet. Even if you would get go to a mainstream movie, if people are taking off, your clo- off their clothes, what business does a Christian have to watch such things? If they were doing that as a play, stage play in your own home, you would say, get out of here. There's no place in a Christian home. So likewise, if such things are going on on the screen, you turn that off and you do not watch it. Likewise, we say here, all immodesty. All immodesty. We always must take care that in our clothing and in our behavior, we're not drawing such attention to our bodies that we are causing others to stumble. It is basic to the law of love and basic to Christian purity. Now, on the inverse, on the inverse, Guarding our hearts. If Jesus says, if you so much as look at a woman with lust in your heart, you are an adulterer at that point. So it is. On both sides of the equation, there must be a striving for sexual purity. So we've seen this. All gender confusion, all profaning of marriage. And Let us close with this statement. All opposition to the Lordship of Christ. Ultimately, the reason why we would take so much time to define and to explain these things particularly is because the honor of Christ is at stake. Christ has spoken. His church must hear. His church must speak. His church must act. In our day, our calling is to hold this line that sexuality is good. It is 
It is a wonderful blessing from the Lord. But if it is twisted into a perversion of itself, it is a tool in the hands of the devil to destroy the church of God. And indeed to destroy all that is good and beautiful about men and women and boys and girls. It says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, or accursed. And it says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Christian, is this what is on your heart? Here is the one who has purchased you with his blood. Here is the one who has spoken to that which is good for you and glorifying to his name. If he should speak such things, he will give you the grace to stand firm in them. And if, as these uh, sins have been unfolded, you can see, yes, I can see I've compromised in this area or in that area, then let me tell you something. The same one who commands, he will gladly forgive each transgression except for one. And that is the sin against the Holy Spirit, whereby you would harden your heart and say, I will not submit to the Lordship of Christ. There is no hope for such as these, my friends. But if, but if we are truly the Lord's people, let us never be ashamed of the one who so teaches us these things. Let us rather speak boldly in our generation and say, I stand with the Lord. And if any man loves not the Lord Christ, let him be anathema. Amen.